Welcome to episode three of Behind the Shield. My name is James Gearing, and I will be your host for this podcast. My guest on this episode is American farmer Joel Salatin. Now, Joel, other than a farmer, is also a lecturer and an author. His books include Folks This Ain't Normal, You Can Farm, and The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs. Joel is an English major from Bob Jones University. He is featured in food documentaries Food Inc. and Fresh, which I recommend both of those. Uh, he has done TED Talks and spoken at Google. And Joel is known for his uh, holistic method of animal husbandry. He has a very unique look at not only the way the animals are raised, but even the way the food that they eat is grown. So he will move his, his animals through geographically through his farm to make sure that the, the acorns, the grass, whatever they're actually eating normally, um, has grown to the point where it has the maximum nutrition and uh, the minimum amount of stress. So the product is the healthiest, leanest meat that you can get. Um, and therefore, this low-stress, high-nutrition environment creates the, the healthiest meat uh, for the, the people that he sells to. He doesn't use any chemicals, any drugs, or GMO feed. Now, this whole topic is so important to me. When you look outside the window, you look at our fellow citizens here in the US, in the UK, and other Western developed countries, um, you are seeing a growing trend of ill health. Um, this can absolutely be improved through exercise and movement. But let's say you exercise for four days a week, about an hour at a time. Well, that's only four hours total in the 150-odd hours a week that you have uh, available to you. So the rest of the time is obviously in that balance of uh, energy in, energy out. The quality of that food is even more important. The gastrointestinal tract is 80% of your immune system. So what you put in is either going to hurt or nourish your body. Um, the food that we've been eating, even the salads and the vegetables and people think they're eating well, if they're covered in pesticides, if people are wearing hazmat suits to apply this to the food that then goes into your children's body, clearly every cell in that, that food is not going to be uh, beneficial. It's going to have some good properties, but obviously some bad properties as well. When you go locally to organic farms and you get uh, vegetables and fruit that have not been sprayed with these chemicals that have been grown naturally, that's 100% nourishment, 100% nutrition. Uh, the same with the meat. If the meat has not been treated with hormones and uh, antibiotics and the meat hasn't been shoulder to shoulder in some god-awful warehouse with these stress hormones just surging through these poor animals, if its growth hasn't been rapidly accelerated through chemicals, then the, the meat that you ingest is going to nourish your body. If it's this sick overdeveloped meat that's kept alive through through pharmaceuticals then again this meat is not going to nourish it's going to it's going to hurt we've seen a rapid increase in the amount of disease in this country heart disease cancer and i am 100 percent sure that a large part of it is to do with the food that we are served the other benefit of buying locally from these sustainable farms is you remove the transportation costs you remove the packaging the impact on, on the environment. 
So your local farmer, if you select one that uh, prescribes to the same philosophy, doesn't have to ship that food 3,000 miles, doesn't have to cling wrap it and, and irradiate it and all the other processes that happen to the food that are in the supermarket. And the, the uh, misunderstanding that this food is more expensive is another lie. You take away the middleman, the publics, the, you know, the supermarket that's obviously trying to make a profit, and understandably so, the cost of processing, the cost of packaging, the cost of transportation, and you go from, from the home directly to the source, i.e. your local farmer, they can afford to give you this product at a cheaper rate than the grocery stores do because all those middlemen that are taking a cut have been eliminated. So that is a fallacy that good food is more expensive. It really isn't if you know where to look. Um, the other element is we consume way too much meat in this country. Um, so to think of it more like quality instead of quantity, you take out a third of your meat consumption replace it with more vegetables, uh, beans, that kind of thing. When you do buy your meat, you buy the high quality meat and that way you know you're nourishing your body um, instead of hurting it. So in this uh, interview, we talk about the food industry and how it became industrialized in the first place. Uh, we touch on the effects of this process on our food and why chemicals are, are usually used in factory farming, um, how sustainable farming creates the best quality food, how to find a local farmer. Joel's up in the Northeast, so everyone listening to this needs to find a farmer that subscribes to this same philosophy in their local area. So he'll talk about it and we'll provide links to where he suggests on the show notes as well. And then how to start a garden, how to take even that, that farmer out of the equation and, and grow some of this stuff yourself. So it doesn't have to be an entire smorgasbord of vegetables and fruit but there's a few things that are very easy to grow in your local area um, you can have chickens in a chicken coop there's all kinds of ideas that he comes up with um, and making yourself more sustainable and that's going to affect you know how much you spend on food you know if you're growing it yourself then you can remove that cost from you know buying those certain vegetables or eggs or poultry i am very excited to introduce joel i think he is He's, he's a voice that we don't normally hear. When we talk about nutrition, you hear the doctor telling you about lower your cholesterol, remove fats from your diet. Um, and you talk about calorie counting and, and, and all these areas of nutrition, but no one ever talks about where the food comes from fundamentally and how if you eat this type of food and, and have uh, an abundance of vegetables on your plate, you can really forget about calorie counting. This will totally nourish your body and if you remove a lot of the processed foods you really eliminate the need to quote-unquote count calories so without further ado i am extremely excited to introduce to you joel salatin So thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be on Behind the Shield. One of the main problems that we have in, in first responders, uh, firemen, policemen, uh, EMS, is uh, miseducation, I guess you could say, from the dietary point of view. There's a, there's a big push on the exercise side of, of losing weight and that kind of thing, but I think there's um, 
a huge lack of knowledge of of the kinds of food people should be eating and also fundamentally where where that food is coming from in the first place so i'd love to take uh take you down that road and, and have you educate everyone that's that's listening um i wonder if we could start with the actual farm itself um i understand your parents bought the farm is that correct Yes, uh, my mom and dad bought this when I was just four in 1961, so we've been here not quite 60 years, and I grew up here. Uh, my mother's still alive, and day-to-day operations are now done by our son, uh, Daniel, and we have our grandchildren here, so we have four generations here on the farm. Fantastic. And when you got there, was the, the soil in incredible condition? <laughs> it, was it was in incredible condition, incredibly bad. Uh, we we had we had uh, very large gullies like corrugated roofing you know down the hillsides, uh, large rock you know rock uh, areas that that had you know no no vegetation on them whatsoever. This these were shale areas, you know a quarter acre or so in size that 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 literally it was bare bare rock. And today, all those areas are covered up with. 12 inches of soil you know it's not it's not three feet like it was 500 years ago but at least it's uh, at least it's covered up and growing something and um, the gullies the gullies are are healing uh slowly and it's um yeah it's it, it was arguably the armpit of the community today it's I would say, arguably the most productive farm in the community. Yeah, certainly the most uh, well-known, that's, that's for sure. I, uh, I grew up on a farm myself. My father was a veterinary surgeon in England. So I've, I've had a unique perspective of you know 2016 and, and the years prior and how we are fed and the choices that we make. I know that we weren't completely organic. I remember using fertilizer and pesticide on some of the foods and... Uh, um, yeah, you know, the chickens were fed meal as well as pecking around in the grass. Uh, and I know we're going to talk about the way that you farm some of those. But uh, it, it gave me a different perspective when I came over here and, and see so many people choosing their, their food from the fridge. Um, you know, the frozen aisle or everything being in a packet. Um, now, did you always want to be a farmer? Were you destined to be a farmer since you were young? Yes, from my earliest memories, uh, I, I definitely wanted to be a farmer. I I think you know looking back as you start thinking about your childhood memories sometimes uh I realize now the impact that my grandfather's uh farm and my great uncle's farm had on me my grandfather actually I shouldn't say farm his garden and my and my uncle's farm um you know I said you know we came to this place it was just you know rocks and weeds and and gullies and it was in rough shape but their places my grandfather was a charter subscriber to Rodale's uh, Organic Gardening and Farming magazine in 1949. Had a, a just this lush garden. It was uh, bounded with a tea trellis uh, grape arbor. And I was a kid, you know, and you could reach up and just pick these <laughs> these ripe succulent grapes. Uh, and it just seemed, you know, boundless to me. And 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 I think I never got away from that almost subconscious. Uh, desire to to nest in abundance, be able to walk out the back door every day, and feel like you're like you're immersed and nestled uh, in, in abundance. A very very powerful uh, metaphor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now your your parents then, when you were growing up, clearly they had a different philosophy than than a lot of people in that generation. So so how how was their philosophy formed to to kick so hard against what a lot of the other farms were doing around them? 
That's a great question. My my dad, uh, his degree was in economics. He was in World War II, and uh, then after the, went to college after the war, and got his degree in economics. And he, I think he came to this more from an economic level than an environmental level. And and, and he realized early on that the the chemical approach, whether it's chemical fertilizer, pesticide, herbicide, whatever, but that, that, that trying, to, um, trying to beat nature with chemicals was essentially a, a drug addiction. It was like a drug addiction, and it was a, it was a vicious circle where you couldn't, you couldn't ever get ahead because nature bats last, and so you were constantly looking for more potent chemicals, uh, um, you know, a, a more just just more uh, more chemicals. You know, we we, we used a hundred pounds last year. We got to use two hundred this year. And he just saw it as a as a treadmill that you could you could never get off of. I mean, like economically, you know, you you can't um, you can't you can't in uh, you can't debt yourself into wealth. You know, uh, and and you, you can't chemicalize yourself into health either. And uh, he saw that, I think, as primarily an economic equation, uh, much more than an environmental equation, which is kind of, which is kind of interesting uh, because most people, as soon as they hear about, you know, not using all that stuff, uh, they assume that you don't have an appreciation for economics because economics means that you go to uh, concentrated animal feeding operations and factories and and you know, industrial, uh, monospeciated farms and chemicals and all that stuff. So um, I like to point that out because because I think the assumption is that that when you do well by the environment, you you uh, hurt yourself economically, and if you're going to do well economically, you necessarily have to um, make some compromises on the environment. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of reminds me of... Uh... I did an economics class years and years ago in England, and one of the only things that stuck, I don't even think I finished the class, to be honest, but um, was the term false economy. And, and I think that's where we're at now, is that they thought that these, these the farming methods were going to save money in, you know, initially, but obviously in the long run now, we have a nation of extremely unwell people. Um, and now we're, we're like, like you said, the debt is now having to be paid physically. And I remember you had a, a great quote in one of your interviews. I heard you in um, a gentleman in the 1940s had said something about if you put chemicals in your food, uh, it was to, it, eventually the people will have to be uh, ke- chemicalized as well. Yeah, yeah, that that was uh, Sir Albert Howard, uh, the the British um, uh, agronomist who brought aerobic the scientist who brought basically the the aerobic composting formula of, of carbon nitrogen uh, moisture oxygen and microbes to the to the world in 1943 writing his iconic and agricultural testament which is kind of considered you know one of the one of the pillars of the entire uh, whatever sustainable ag regenerative agriculture movement uh, he said uh, when we use artificial manures that's what he called chemical fertilizers artificial manures we um, we grow artificial plants which feed artificial animals which make artificial people who can only be uh, kept alive by using artificials and of course look at our pharmaceutical industry um, you know that was that was 1943 when he said that and certainly you know being kept alive with artificials um, 
is certainly where our nation has come at this point. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that pretty much anyone that deals with um, EMS that's listening to this can testify that we have these patients with, with literally a trash bag full of medications and they're not fixing anything at all. And the, the bigger irony is anyone in the medical community has to take the Hippocratic Oath. Yeah, Hipp- Hippocrates himself said, let food be thy medicine. So <laughs> that's to me the biggest irony you can possibly have in the medical industry right now. Yes, and and I think one of the one of the problems is that nobody knows what their tolerances are. Uh, you know, I don't want anybody to, to to listening to this to think that I'm some sort of a cultish and 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 um, it's anathema to ever eat a Snickers bar or even drink a Coke for that matter. Okay, but there's a big difference between having one once a month as a little treat and having two a day or three a day. And, and, you know, moderation in all things. And so, uh, I, and, and, you know, EMS personnel routinely spend a lot of time hanging out at the rescue squad or the fire station or whatever. And what do we do when we just kind of hang around? Well, we, we, we snack, you know, we, we, uh, snack on things. And, um, and so, you know, the, the old, uh, adage, you know, that the, the cops all go down to Dunkin' Donuts. Um, you know, it's, it, there's a, there, the reason it's humor is, is good humor is because it, there's an element of truth to it. And so, um, we need to appreciate that none of us knows where our tolerances are. We don't know when that, when that snacking and what we're snacking on is going to result in diabetes or obesity or, or, you know, any of these kinds of things. And the truth is, if you look at the label, you know, you can't pronounce half of the stuff that's on the label. And that's brand new in the human lexicon and the human uh, gut. The, the, the microbiome, uh, you know, was not, was not designed to handle uh, things that you needed to be a scientist in a laboratory to make or things that, that were too hard to pronounce, to say. I'm kind of a... Uh, with Michael Pollan, who says, you know, we probably shouldn't eat anything that wasn't available before 1900. That's kind of when things really went south. And, of course, we can all be very thankful that uh, hot dogs were introduced at the 1890 World's Fair. So, you know, hot dogs just squeaked in under the uh, under the 1900s uh, benchmark. <laughs> that was the ones without nitrates back then, probably. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. They were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah on, on, our, on our farm, we make... Uh, we make hot dogs, and uh, yeah, they don't have anything unpronounceable. You know, it's just beef and pork, and and uh, they're they're really great. And they actually and they actually taste like food. They don't taste like, you know, some uh, synthetic material. Yeah, absolutely. So that that kind of pushed me to the next question. I think this is a huge pivotal one. We obviously our generation. Uh, I'm 42 now, so I was raised outside of my farm. I was raised to to believe that you know it, it's safe to spray all our food in insecticides and you know the mass production and uh, pasteurizing our milk and all these other other areas that we literally were, were taught by our school boards and our, our health boards of the respective countries so when did the industrialization of food really begin and then what was the the regression from there well i i think that the real uh catalyst came post-world war ii because um, 
you have to remember that ammunition, bombs, explosives, are made from nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. And, of course, those are the three things that are in chemical fertilizer. And so after World War II, we had all these stockpiles of, of NP and K. We had all these uh, businesses, you know, that, uh, you know, big businesses that had developed to, to, to mine and bag and, and, and create NP and K. And so it was extremely cheap. And so um, the natural thing was, well, let's, let's find a market for these things. Let's go. And, and of course, in that day, um, you know, you could sprinkle some of this on the soil and it would really take off. Well, the soils, a lot of the soils responded to it um, because they still had organic matter left over from draft power from all the animal manures and, and, and all that stuff. So, you know, they, they responded to it. And, and so... I'm a little bit careful to, um, you know, to cast great disparagements on, you know, on, on great-grandpa who reached for that bag of chemical fertilizer as opposed to shoveling, 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 shoveling uh, in a day when, you know, there, there were not front-end loaders. Uh, you know, there was, so the alternative was, well, do I, do I spread this little bag of stuff? I mean, it's like a miracle. Or do I shovel? And people were tired of shoveling. They'd been shoveling all the time. And so uh, for the first five or six years, you know, this, this took off. And, of course, it was all cheap because they were leftover stockpiles from the war effort. In many cases, it had virtually been paid for and was just, you know, a salvage operation. So it was extremely cheap, extremely, um, um, you know, marketable. Uh, it, it was, it was um, accessible. And so uh, that that took off. Well, in the early 1950s, then, you know, we had the development of the tractor and, uh, of course, rural electrification, plastic pipe, uh, chippers, shredders, um, you know, and gradually the components, the components to run a true carbon-centric system gradually came into being through the 1950s. So that by 1960, there was absolutely no reason whatsoever to be using chemical fertilizers. But by that time, that orthodoxy was so entrenched in the cultural psyche that it was very difficult to, as we say, unring that bell. You can't unring a bell. And so you couldn't, you couldn't restart that clock. By that time, you know, the land-grant universities, the research uh, nonprofits, uh, all of the, the USDA, all of these things were, were stacked and stocked with a paradigm that was a chemical-oriented uh, paradigm. The truth is that if we, if we had had a Manhattan Project for compost, um, not only would we have fed the world, we would have done it without uh, three-legged salamanders, infertile frogs, and in a, a dead zone the, Gulf, the size of New Jersey in the Gulf of Mexico. That's the truth, but we didn't have a Manhattan product project for that. We had a Manhattan project for something else, and so um, so that that's where we ended up. Right, and then the the uh, I guess the Monsanto uh, uh, pesticide area was another separate uh, arm of that whole movement. Well, yeah. Well, you know, it's it's like every um, if you read uh, you know the diffusion of innovation, these business books that talk about you know, um, uh, 
new things and how to how they market, how they change markets, and how markets adapt. What you see is this is this um, you know gentle slow start, and then as, and then it it comes to this it, the trajectory starts to steepen and steepen uh, because you get all the all the components necessary to make it efficient. You know, uh, mining. Uh, um, laboratories, uh, distribution, packaging, uh, marketing, advertising, you know, all these things have to come together. And so it just, it just got, you know, steeper and the, the, the curve got faster and faster. And so, you know, what started out as, as pigs coming in off of pasture and going into a small piggery of, of 20 south gradually became a piggery, you know, a concentrated animal feeding operation of of, of uh, five thousand sows, uh, pigs, uh, chickens, the same thing. Uh, antibiotics played a huge role in this because prior to antibiotics, you simply couldn't, um, uh, you know, put this many animals in one spot in such filthy conditions and have them survive. So the the, the concentrated animal feeding operation was definitely a product of of antibiotics that allowed us to keep these animals alive in such uh, filthy and unsanitary conditions. And then, of course, you had petroleum came along, which allowed us to efficiently transport stuff. I mean, you couldn't have a CAFO 150 years ago because you you simply couldn't put, you couldn't bring in that much food stuff and haul out that much manure you simply couldn't do it 150 years ago because tra- you, you, you couldn't do it with draft power. It was too transportation was too expensive and too difficult, too arduous and laborious. But when petroleum came along, and transportation was extremely cheap, then all of these historic kind of boundaries um, uh, could be could be broken, and you could just and you could do pretty much anything you wanted to. So you have a pocket full of antibiotics, and the truck is idling in the, you know, on the porch, and suddenly all these historic, um, historic parameters, these historic norms, um, you know, could be, could be punched through. You know, we, we didn't have to uh, do only what we could move with draft power. We didn't have to do only what we could shovel or, or move. And you know, um, and then as, as we did that. You know the the capacity to take that paradigm on down the road uh, did indeed occur, and um, you know Joel Arthur Barker, who wrote the book uh, Paradigms, uh, said that every paradigm eventually ex- exceeds its point of efficiency, and that's of course exactly where we are now, as this paradigm of concentrated animals, segregated uh, food systems, monospeciation. Uh, chemical fertilization, and now, of course, uh, you know, genetically modified organisms and whatever. Uh, these have now, you know, uh, continued to accelerate. And, and, and so now, suddenly, in the last 30 years, we have this burgeoning uh, problem with, uh, for example, food allergies. Um, you know, when I was growing up, the phrase food allergies didn't even exist. I mean, no, nobody said anything you could have a potluck or a get together. Nobody had to worry about gluten or peanuts or or whatever. And now, you know, you can't have a get together without accommodating half a dozen uh, special 
food allergy requests. Then you have, you know, E. coli, salmonella, campylobacter, listeria, bovine spongiform encephalopathy. You know, all of these things have come in the last 30 years as that supposedly um, progressive and scientific uh, um, paradigm has exceeded its point of efficiency, and nature is now nature is now batting last, and and we're seeing it, of course, in consequences as you mentioned, you know, in uh, you know bags full of, uh, of of medications and um, and you know social. Uh, emotional problems uh, from, you know, from rage to depression to uh, all sorts of things that, of course, first responders deal with on a daily basis. For, for sure, first responders are on the, you know, on, on the cutting edge of society's fringes, and um, and it's it's society's fringes where you see the the fabric, the matrix of a civilization. You see them beginning to crumble. And so first responders have a, have a very unique and special, uh, look into the, the mortar that's cracking on the bastions of civilization. It's quite profound. Yeah, that's a very good way of looking at it. I never even thought about that. But we certainly, I think to me, it, it's just so blatant that the philosophy we have in our healthcare at the moment just does not work. It's not like, Someone has blood pressure medicine for six months and then they come up to you one day like, God, oh, that medicine works so well. My blood pressure is perfect now. I don't have to take it anymore. That never happens. They're on that medication the rest of their life. They're on the, the diabetes medication, the cholesterol medication. And, and you, you see, I, I see my blood work from the way I eat. And, and you see some of these great documentaries, Food Inc. and Forks Over Knives and Fat Sick and Nearly Dead. And you see these people healed just by returning and eating the way they were supposed to eat a hundred years ago. And it's that simple. And, and yet this, this lie is so ingrained in people's psyche that when you talk to them like that, you get looked at like you're, you know, you just pooped in their cornflakes. And it's, 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 it's incredible that, I mean, that, you know, they've managed to, to, to pull that off in such a short time. Well, it it, cer- it certainly is, and and uh, and then then you have the the fire station and rescue squad. They've, again, everybody's hanging around there, so they've got vending machines with nabs and and soda and all this in. I mean, it's it's a it's just it's just a disaster uh, uh, waiting to happen. And so, yes, the whole food the the body food connection is. Um, profoundly inarguable today and everywhere i go i i you know i run into people that have you know healed their children from autism healed themselves from uh you know cancers uh um, all sorts of things simply by fundamentally changing diet you know the the human the human experience um you know was not designed to be um, you know, to be propped up to, to have crutches of pharmaceuticals. You know, that, that should be the, the, the person that needs this stuff should be an anomaly, not the norm. And, and the fact that it is becoming such a, such a norm is indicative that something is, you know, greatly out of whack. 
Absolutely. I know the one of the statistics that blew me away was, and I didn't realize this till somewhat recently, that the GI tract is actually 80% of our immune system. So obviously, whatever you put in your mouth that travels through that tube and comes out the other end is going to affect you positively or negatively. And as you mentioned with the the uh, bacteria in there, it's going to kill them and, and destroy everything or it's going to get them to bloom and, and thrive in the, in the right way, not in an imbalanced way like C. diff or something like that. Yes. Well, you know, we 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 are studying now a lot of the whole microbiome thing and uh you know, each of us has has three trillion, three trillion uh, beings, critters, uh, in our you know in our digestive tract. Three trillion. I mean, that's a pretty big community. And when you think about it, there's a lot of intricacy there too. And you know, they have to build highways and have fire stations and rescue squads and hospitals and schools and you know go to the you know Lions Club and whatever. I mean, they're doing all sorts of stuff down there, and. Uh, and that that's a very complex uh community to maintain and if we put toxins into it if we put uh foreign material into that community it's going to upset that community just like you know polluted water in a community or or uh, corrupt politicians or whatever you you throw corruption in a community and you're going to you're going to be in disarray and that's the same thing in this uh, in this bacterial microbial community of three trillion members in our in our gut. Um, you know, we, we we don't we don't see it, but uh, it's nonetheless there and completely dependent on what we're what we're giving it every day. Right. And is that am I, am I correct in understanding that down the the line of GMOs? By messing with the genetic structure of these these you know, basically foreign objects, that the body is now not able to recognize them. These these ancient ancient bacteria are not able to recognize these particles that are coming in, and that's what's causing the problems. Or am I off there? Uh, no, you're you're in the ballpark, and you know I'm not a I'm not a scientist in that regard, so I can't give you all the the Latin ins and outs of, of this thing. But yes, you're exactly right. The the uh, the GMO studies uh, that have been done where they actually uh, feed them the way you and I would eat and not in some special contrived uh, uh, prejudicial study that Monsanto sets up. Um, the, 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 the truth, I mean, I'll give you an example. When, when, um, when Monsanto was looking at uh, GMO potatoes, for example, they specifically chose um, they specifically chose geriatric rats. This is all in uh, Jeffrey Smith's um, book, uh, Seeds of Deception. It's a great book. Anybody that wants to, you know, get a, a kind of layman's look at, at GMOs. And so they, they, they got geriatric rats and fed them. Well, they didn't see any difference in the GMOs versus the non-GMOs. But when the same experiment was repeated in um, Scotland, but but instead of being completely repeated, they repeated everything except except they used juvenile rats instead of geriatric rats. Well, then suddenly they had all sorts of problems. They had, they had uh, uh, organ, you know, organ malfunction. They had sociopathy, had a mental, you know, um, mental breakdown. Um, it was just, you know, all sorts of problems. Just by changing the experiment from geriatric rats, who already, you know, had their routines and their, 
and their personalities and their organs and whatever. You know, there's no, you know, geriatrics. They, they don't change much. They've already lived their life and it's it's done. Uh, you don't see the big differences. But in the in the young ones where the metabolism is faster and they're still developing, they saw you know huge huge differences. And so you know these kinds of studies have been now done all over the world, and um, the only people who can't see them, of course, are the people who are, um, you know, who are who are in agreement with the basic idea that life is fundamentally mechanical, and you know that that's where it comes down. Um, you know, the the industrial mindset suggests that that life is fundamentally mechanical, and we can tweak and move and and adjust this DNA and that DNA and throw chemicals on the soil and, and, and whatever, whereas many of us believe that life is fundamentally not mechanical but biological. And there's a huge difference between biology and mechanics. Uh, one of the big differences is that, uh, that, that living things are spontaneous. They, they kind of think. They don't just follow a routine uh, they, they often, you know, kind of have a mind of their own. But the main thing is that biological things can heal. Mechanical things can't. If a bearing goes out in your, in your front wheel of your truck, um, you know, it, it's not going to get better by rest or by, you know, praying over it or whatever. It's only going to get better if you take it out and replace it. Um, but, you know, biological things can heal. They, they can be in rough shape and you can change the diet. You can change the support. You can, you can have a relationship that's gone south and you can ask for a forgiveness and apologize and the relationship can be healed. I mean, this, this fundamental idea that, that biological systems can heal is the great hope, is the great hope that we have. And um, it's it's a wonderful thing compared to compared to mechanics. But the entire industrial food system that you know that you can live on on Twinkies and cocoa puffs and Mountain Dew uh, is predicated on a on the idea that your body and my body and life is fundamentally mechanical, and it doesn't really matter um, it doesn't really matter what biology goes in. Yeah, it's it's very. Uh... It's very scary. I think one of the other fundamental things that that we're seeing, you know, in in the last few generations now, is it seems like if you remove the desire to have all the money, all the power, and just disseminate it back to the whole country, we would eliminate a lot of those problems as well. And you see that with the mega farms now. You know, one or two farm companies that want to provide all the food to the entire country or the world, for that matter. I mean, of course, it's going to just fundamentally fall apart instead of having all these small farms being supported by by their local communities and the food traveling, you know, as as I know your policy is less than four hours. Um, and, and that way it's not being packaged. It's not being frozen or ir- irradiated or any of those things. You go to your local farmer, you you pick up your food and then you bring it home. Yeah, well, there there are a lot of aspects to the you know the global food matrix um as you mentioned the, you know the first one being opaqueness i mean you just can't you can't follow that chain of custody and so so you don't know what is going on in that you know shrimp farm in thailand that's showing up at your applebee's restaurant 
Um, and so when you start eating more local, you actually have a shorter chain of custody from farm to farm to plate. And the shorter chain of custody allows you to have more accountability because there's more transparency in that shorter chain of custody. And I think, I think another thing that's really powerful is that when you have a local-centric food system, you, you actually uh, increase a capacity for resilience and security in the food system. You know, when you're dependent on a Costco warehouse a thousand miles away, uh, that ultimately is a fairly fragile system. I mean, you have to assume that trucks can run on time, that computers work, that uh, the merchant marine gets their, you know, their stuff hauled to the dock on, uh, on time. Um, you know, a lot of things have to work uh, smoothly in that situation. But when you have a local-centric system, where you know your farmer or you, you, you know, you're very, very close, you can actually see what's on inventory. You know where it is. Uh, you, can, you can walk there if you had to. Uh, the point is that there's a tremendous amount of resiliency and forgiveness built into the system when you have uh, proximity between producer and consumer as opposed to uh, long distance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another huge uh lie really or, or or misunderstanding i guess would be a more gentle way of saying it is that the pesticide covered foreign fruit and vegetables for example that we find in our our shelves in the local supermarket are cheaper than organic and obviously they are if you buy the organic in the same shop or in whole foods but if you just go to your local farmer's market it's cheaper i mean i i have bags and bags full of of produce that i buy once a week from my local farm and i mean literally probably four or five of those cloth uh grocery bags is for about fifty dollars there's no way in hell you'd be able to buy that much food in this in the, but but again it's it's that simple simple message doesn't get out there and if you remove the middlemen and the price of the gas and the taxes and and all the other uh skimming that goes on between them and you then all of a sudden it's cheaper and they they still make their money and you still get your food well, that's exactly right, and and um, you know, you're mentioning you're mentioning this makes me uh, think about the, just the cost of, of processing and packaging and and all that. You know, the, the the way the way to get affordable food is to get whole food. You know, just just raw foods, and then use your own kitchen to prepare, package, preserve. Uh, you know, to the the food. Um, I was in. Um, I was in New York City a couple of years ago, and um, we went down to the green market there on Union Square, arguably the most expensive farmer's market in the most expensive city of the world. And I asked my hostess, could you take me to the most, could you show me the most expensive potato in this market? She said, oh, I know just the guy. So we, you know, shoulder our way through the crowd, come up to this uh, farmer with his and he's got a, a like a credenza, you know, a bunch of little cubbies with all these potatoes in them. He has about 20 different varieties, orange ones, red ones, blue ones, long ones, skinny ones, round ones, whatever. And so I looked and I found the most expensive one. It was a blue Peruvian heirloom fingerling potato for $1.99 a pound, which is, you know, a little bit pricey for potatoes. But all around that uh, that green market are supermarkets 
with 120 feet of fluorescent lighted tile floor with shelves full of potato chips for $2.99 a pound. You know, uh, uh, way, way more expensive than those little potatoes. So when I say, you know, get in your kitchen, um, I don't mean go back to, you know, washboards, hoop skirts, and, and hearth cooking, as romantic as, as that may sound to somebody that's never done it. Um, you know, we, we've never techno-gadgetized our kitchens as uh, comfortably as we have today with hot and cold running water, refrigerators, freezers, uh, you know, flickable button stoves, slow cookers, Tom's Bake, um, uh, Cuisinart's, Fry Babies, bread makers, ice cream makers, Tupperware. <laughs> yeah. Grandma would have given her eye teeth for all this stuff. Um, and, and so it's never, it's, we, we've never been able to more efficiently or sanitarily or, or, or simply, you know, actually prepare food. And, and yet, you know, the average American is far more interested and knowledgeable about the latest dysfunction in the Kardashian household than they are what's going to become flesh of their flesh and bone of their bones at 6 o'clock. And, 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 when, and when that's the case, when that's the case, those shortcuts that we take for our own food and nutrition, our own uh, body's well-being, those shortcuts are going to come back to haunt us. And, of course, that's exactly what we see. Yeah, and, and again, you touched with the packaging. I mean, if you look at our grocery cart full of, of food, by the time you empty all of those food items out of whatever's surrounding them, you end up with two garbage bags full of crap that you've got to get rid of now somewhere. Whereas if you're yeah. taking home cloth bags full of, of, uh, yeah. of, of vegetables, you have zero packaging. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, well, I mean, just for just for your own, uh, you know, for, for just for canning. I mean, if you bought a bushel basket full of green beans and and just canned them, uh, we you know we get an argument about canning or not. But let's just assume that. I mean, put them in glass jars. You know, there's 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 virtually no waste except you know you're probably going to throw away the little uh, the little lid. Um, but the the comparison in the amount of packaging material for landfills and for petroleum use and just the sheer uh, uh, volume of that is is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it would it would make such a huge difference on on uh, I think everyone's community. I mean, because some people might not have that giant uh, bird-filled mountain in their in their. Uh, local area yet but if you go to any any larger urban area i mean they they have those things at the, the side of the freeways and it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger so something has to stop there too yeah uh-huh that's right so i'm going to transition now a little bit to to polyface well first i had a question about polyface where did you come up with the name well uh poly of course is the greek um the the latin prefix for many and so we knew that we wanted to do a lot of different things. So we decided that we would be Polyface, the farm of many faces. Right. And uh, I know you have several different uh, species of livestock on there. Uh, the, the transient pastures that you, you use in pretty much all your animals. Can you describe that? Because I think that's, that's fascinating to me. I watched your 
TEDx talk, and and you, you I'm sure you'll talk about it now, but the the difference in the maturity of the grasses and how that ultimately affects the the animals themselves. Okay, so grass grows in a in an S curve, a sigmoid curve. It starts slow, then grows real fast, and then goes into senescence and slows down. And so the idea, the the reason that there are so many herbivores around the planet is to prune that grass as it moves towards senescence, to prune it back to uh, pre-adolescent stage so it can go through another, you know, vibrant, vigorous, um, you know, green growth stage, which, of course, also means that it's going to inhale um, carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, break off the carbon, leave it in the soil, and uh, exhale the oxygen so you and I can breathe. So we don't... So when we look at, you know, at nature, at the template of nature, what we see are uh, animals moving. In fact, we see large herds of animals moving, but we don't have those large herds anymore. We don't have the wolves. We don't have fire. Um, so, you know, and, 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 a, and an eight, eight million head herd of bison uh, running down through your, you know, your uh, Starbucks and the elementary school might not be a really good thing. What we do have now is electric fencing, which acts as a steering mechanism, a steering wheel, a brake, and and an accelerator on that four-legged pruner. So we can now steer the animals, steer the animals around the pasture so that we um, perfectly uh, manage the meeting, the, the timing of that meeting between plant and animal so that they work in symbiosis rather than um, rather than competitively. So the cows move every day at four o'clock to a new a new paddock that's been allowed to rest for you know two or three months so the grass is long and we mob them in there real you know at high density so they, they look like a like a mob of, of wild herbivores and then uh, and then tomorrow at four o'clock they'll move on to the next paddock. And so any one area will only have a cow on it, you know, maybe three or four times in a year. Then after the herd moves along, following about four days behind, are the eggmobiles. These are portable uh, hen houses, chicken houses with layers, who free range out from those hen houses, scratch through the cow patties, eat out the fly larvae, sanitize the paddock, turn the newly exposed grasshoppers and crickets into eggs, and work symbiotically with the herbivores, just like, you know, the birds in nature. So, you know, these are systems that we use. Um, you know, pigs are, pigs are out in uh, pig pastures with uh, kind of silvopastures, widely spaced trees and, um, and grasses. And, again, they get moved not every day, but uh, every 5 to 12 days. Uh, they get moved to a new paddock. And um, those we touch three times a year. Acorn glens in the forest for the pigs; those get touched once or twice a year. They're more they're more uh, uh, extensive and not quite as intensive. Um, so yeah, everything is um, everything is out and moving along. So it's moving. Yeah, free range is designed to uh, versus the the factory meats that are stressed and side by side and having to be medicated just to basically a chemical life support till they're slaughtered? Yes. Well, yeah, we don't have to use the antibiotics and, and uh, the grubicides, the parasiticides, and all those things that the industry uses because we're actually uh, using 
the different animals in in symbiosis in, in relational symbiosis to each other and um, you know there, there's nothing as exciting as a confused pathogen and uh, in our industrial system everything is about monospeciation you know whether it's uh, cherry trees or uh, wheat fields or um, you know a, a Tyson chicken farm the whole idea is to just grow one thing and grow it very densely and grow it over and over and over again. Well, all three of those things, one thing densely and over and over, nature doesn't do any of that stuff. Uh, nature is always about um, multiple things and and uh, uh, seasonal, you know, seasonal differences, different kinds of vegetation, different times of the season, and um, and actually. Uh, disturbance events, you know, whether it's fire or a big herd moving through, big flock of birds, you know, uh, destroying a, uh, an area for a day. Um, but, but nature is all about, you know, uh, change up, change up. And of course, industry is all about same, keep it the same, keep it the same, keep it the same. Nature is all about spontaneity and dynamics. And so uh, on our farm, we, you know, we build ponds. We have a lot of uh, uh, tree peninsulas, uh, you know, uh, forestal zones to stimulate wildlife. Um, and, of course, the, the pastures, so you have a lot of this edge effect, you know, open land, forest land, riparian. Uh, the ponds we can use for irrigation in a drought. Uh, water is gravity-fed through a matrix of, of six miles of, um, of, of water line, water pipes. So we have you know, uh, fresh um, gravity pressure, high pressure gravity fed water on the whole place. So, you know, it's not like we sit around here and, and, and do nothing. We just uh, try to strategically interact with the landscape in a way that builds resilience and redemptive capacity into the landscape. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, like I said, I've seen that the, the 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 incredible farm that you have now and to say that you went originally from a very barren landscape that model surely uh would be of great interest to areas that do have more drought whether it's domestic or international for you know potentially growing crops and feeding people there too yeah that's right that's right yeah that would be incredible so the other question i'm, I'm sure that everyone's listening to now is i'm pretty sure they're sold as as i was when i first heard you talk a long time ago um you know, side by side, there's there's a, absolutely no question. You know, one one animal is inhumanely raised, and and obviously the meat is going to be very very unhealthy, and we're we're seeing that with the ill health of our nation. And then you've got the humanely raised that you are part of that group. So, what are good resources for people to find in a farm like yours in their local area? Well, fortunately, there are farms that are doing a good job virtually in every community. Um, you know, there's the Weston A. Price Foundation. They do the Smart Shoppers Guide. There are every state has, um, you know, some sort of sustainable ag, ecological, agriculture, you know, network support group in it. Um, uh, find out, you know, who that is and, and check with that outfit. Um, uh, you know, check with your CrossFit gym or wellness centers, naturopaths, acupuncturists. Uh, often, you know, anybody in that alternative wellness community will be plugged into, you know, the the uh, the wellness food. Uh, the point is, 
that um, this is a a non-front page undercurrent. You know, we we are a we are an alternative of a, a gorilla a gorilla tribe, if you will. And uh, so we're everywhere, but you have to find us. You have to seek us out. And um, and as soon as you start um, seeking farmers like ours out, you know, you will you will find us. I mean, there's. Um, for pastured livestock, there's uh, eatwild.com, which is the number one uh, national website for um, for pasture-based livestock. It's not a certification thing; it's just a you know, it's just a, a, a place where farmers who do this can can register. Uh, so you know, there's no substitute for knowing your farmer, know your food, go visit the farm. If the farmer won't let you visit, then you know, don't go there. Uh, we have a 24/7, 365 open door policy here. Anyone can come from anywhere, anytime to see anything unannounced. That's our commitment to to transparency. And so, uh, you just have to appreciate, you just have to understand that this is a tribe. So, if you're if you're seeking that alternative wellness, you know, seek out the alternative wellness community in your community, and you'll find a vibrant support network. For these folks, uh, the Nutritional Therapy Association, nutritional therapists—they're um, a national network. There are several uh, groups uh, that, that 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 do nutritional therapy. They're plugged in to this wellness community. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, it's there. You just have to—you uh, just have to find it. Fantastic. Now, you, you you mentioned the word certification. It just kind of jarred something else that I've been meaning to ask you. So you are known for preparing your your chickens, and I was is the one I've seen outside in the fresh air in the pasture. Um, I know that's frowned upon by the governing agencies that be. So um, how's that battle coming on? Are they starting? Are the people starting to push now for deregulation of some of that stuff? Oh, uh, not really. That uh, it's 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 generally speaking, it's getting worse and worse. What? What we are seeing, I think, is a little more uh, ability for small producers to, um, you know, to comply with licensing. There, there does seem to be some, um, you know, some give in the regulatory world uh, to allow smaller outfits to comply uh, cheaper, easier. And, you know, and this is as it should be there. There, scale scale does make a difference. It does make a difference whether you're, you know, uh, making uh, ten pounds of cheese or ten thousand pounds of cheese, and um, and so uh, this this whole compliance thing is is a big deal. Um, there are definitely efforts underway to circumvent the compliance, which we think is great. Um, you know, we are big believers in. Uh, the right of private contract is guaranteed by the Bill of Rights, uh, but we haven't been following the Bill of Rights for a very, very long time. And the right of private contract says, essentially, if you and I want to do business together, um, it's none of the government's business. If we want to do a private contract between each other, I want to buy from you or you want to sell to me or whatever. But we have this, this uh, big brother um, bureaucracy that, that points its nose and gets in the way of of innovative embryonic solutions to our food system, and that then arbitrarily makes the price of alternative food more expensive than it should be. 
And um, so these are all, you know, these are all big issues that are all part of the equation and part of our context. And the way to make progress fastest on this front is for more and more and more people to take it upon themselves to find integrity food, patronize it, and realize that we are changing our landscape one bite at a time. Whatever we have on the landscape, the the health of our nation, the health of our farms, the health of our soil, all of that today is a physical manifestation of the compounded decisions that everybody's been making for the last X number of years. Where we will be in the future, in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, will also be a physical manifestation of the decisions we make between now and then. So at the end of the day, my question is, as a result of my decisions this week, have I helped, have I, you know, the old parable of the the dog, which dog will will survive, which dog will thrive, will the one you feed? So I'm asking, which dog are you feeding? Are you feeding the Monsanto dog, the dog of obesity, health, and and, 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 uh, uh, of of, uh, ill health, erosion, um, abuse, and, and violence? Uh, toward the ecology, toward the biological world, or are you feeding the dog toward wellness, resilience, forgiveness, and healing? And uh, and 20 years down the road, we'll know which dog we fed. Yes, yes, we will. It's, it's interesting. I, I just found a quote the other day. Winston Churchill actually said, healthy citizens are the greatest asset any country can have. Now, following this most recent um, election process that we've had, I think it's clearer now than ever. And I'm not saying versus left or right. I'm just saying the entire process from beginning to end um, that we do need to vote with our dollar. We do need to vote with our individual voice, because if we put all our faith into whoever they place at the top of the pyramid, which should really be upside down anyway, then we're, we're, we're at their mercy. But if we actually start making decisions and voting, like you said, with our feet, then we are going to change this world. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now the other other thing I wanted to just touch on is, obviously a lot of people listening to this are going to be in some of sort of urban or suburban area. Now, I looked into my homeowners association rules and I'm not allowed to have chickens or anything. Um, I'm hoping that, that that's going to change. But do you have any... Any tips on on someone that just wants to take a corner of their of their garden and and start a very very small scale um, vegetable patch and or chicken coop type deal? Uh, well, uh, yeah. Um, again, I think the more people do this, you know, the old victory gardens of World War II. Um, you know, the more people that do this, the more awareness there is, the more interest there is. Uh, it just, you know, it just moves the conversation forward and I would say the freedom forward as more and more people come on board. So, uh, yes, I'm a huge believer in, in uh, doing something for yourself. And uh, if for no other reason than to just dabble your toe into the, the awesomeness and the mystery and the magic of, of life. And, um, and I, I think for children, uh, gardens are amazingly therapeutic, self-affirming. I mean, the, the, the self-affirmation that comes from uh, being able to, you know, plant a tomato seed and then, you know, eat 
pull a tomato off and watch the juice run down your elbows as you eat that tomato. That is such a more powerful and profound uh, human affirmation than being the top points getter on Angry Birds. <laughs> so I think so too. Yeah, so so I, I think they have a lot uh, to offer, and wonderfully, we now have a lot of infrastructure that enables us to do this more efficiently and easier. Uh, you know, we have these these um, uh, PVC pipes with you know side pockets in them, where you pack them full of compost, you pack your plant in there, and you drip on top, and and the plants grow out the sides of them, barrels uh, uh, like this. We have. Um, you know, the, the patio gardens, the, the stackable pots where you can, you know, stack them up on a patio, uh, you know, beehives on your on your uh, roof, the house roof, um, solariums, all these wonderful solarium kits, stick them on the south side of your house and you can grow, um, you know, we're, you know, we, we eat, um, we eat mescaline mix and, and lettuce, you know, year round from our solarium on the side of our house our house was built in 1790 so if we can do it on our house you can certainly do it on yours and um and and i think that uh, that those those kinds of participant visceral participatory actions um uh, move our our collective psyche and move our collective understanding of this of this uh, anchoring to our ecological umbilical i think it moves it to a place of humility rather than hubris and i think a place of humility uh is a place for all of us to start absolutely yeah i think the appreciation when you open the door the appreciation of where you are um is huge i live in central florida and people get bogged down in their everyday lives and I'd say to my little boy, just zoom out for a second. We live in the state where most people will save up to come visit for a week. And this is your home. This is where you live. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that's right. You appreciate what's around you. And I'm, I'm right next to what's called a, an Ocala National Forest and the Florida Greenway. So we have ah. amazing nature running around. In fact, if I, if my homeowners does stay inflexible, I probably will transition because this is a, a horse farm community originally. So. There is a lot of land and there are, you know, some mini farms that you can get for somewhat decent amount. But but I think you're. Yeah, well, those HOA things are are just. Oh, man, don't even get me started on those things. They're they're just they're just uh, frustrating. And I'll tell you what they what they do, what they show is not only a profound mis uh, whatever uh, arrogance toward, you know, toward our dependency on nature. I, I think they indicate a condescending attitude toward toward farming, uh, actually. And you know, why is it that growing a rose bush is perfectly acceptable, but a tomato plant is unacceptable? The only the only difference is, you know, one's edible and one's just ornamental. But but one smacks of smacks of garden shows, the other smacks of 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 farmers. And I think that as a culture. We have denigrated farming uh, to the point where most farmers are, are kind of apologetic about being farmers. Well, you know, I guess I didn't have enough brains to be an engineer or a doctor, so, you know, I just became a farmer. And we've got this kind of universal uh, uh, mindset that, that dumb people farm and smart people don't. And I think that that's a very, very dangerous uh, place. To 
to be when the most precious assets of any culture are air, soil, and water, and farmers are our first responders to air, soil, and water, and we've condescended to them as if they don't really matter. And that is a very dangerous place for a civilization to, to be. Yeah. Well, especially as you said, I mean, they're, they're not doctors, but they are. <laughs> We've come full circle and yeah, they provide the very medicine that we need. And I think that there's a, there's a phrase that I love is in, in America and, and England and other Western countries were malnourished and overfed, which sounds like a ridiculous statement, but it's true. The, the calories that we consume are ungodly, yet the nutrition on the plate is, is almost non-existent. That's right. That's right. It's empty. It's empty calories with no uh, nutrition to go with them. That's correct. Yeah. Well, I would love. I mean, I, I honestly think there is a a movement. There's a couple of phrases I keep hearing now. There's definitely uh, a paradigm shift going on. I think people are finally getting sick and tired of being sick and tired, being worked into the ground, of not sleeping properly, over medicated. And then uh, the, the the word that comes up a lot is that when you use it yourself is that tribe. And I. I'm going to have Sebastian Junger on the podcast in uh, next ah, month, and his book, good. his tribe, is phenomenal. And as a fireman, and I've touched on this and, and a couple of my other interviews, that's what's missing in society. And I think he absolutely hit the nail on the head. And I think when when you're connected to your community again, and obviously through your farms, you're recreating that tribe that that people, you know, that that's the the fundamental soul of of the human species. Yes. Yes. Uh, oh, that that'll be an exciting program. That'll be great. Good. Good for you. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait for that. Well, this is an exciting program too, though. I mean, I was I was scrambling because it came together so quickly. But uh, listening to you, we don't. I mean, like you said it yourself. There's there's umpteen scientists that you could interview, but how many farmers do you get to? You know, actual conscious farmers that that truly grow the way it's supposed to be grown and and, and raise livestock the way it's supposed to be raised and educate. Our generation, I mean, you know, pretty much yours and mine, everyone uh, younger than us, of of what it's supposed to be like, because we were all told something different. And I even even growing up on my farm, it was it was a hybrid of of the old style and the the industrial style. And, and my father was a vet, so he he was you know healing animals the whole time. But even he believed a lot of the things that that we were told. So I think this the shift really is is going to happen. But I think people need to take a look in the mirror and, and be brave, make a courageous decision and say, I'm going to, you know, it's okay to change your mind. It's okay to say, you know what, you got me. Then yeah, congratulations, you, you duped me. And, you know, I have these ailments now, but today is a day I turn around and say enough is enough. And I'm investing in my health. And that example you use, I've heard you in, in other interviews, people say they can't afford to eat healthy. And then you point out all the material items that we have in our homes that we quote unquote can't live without. It's time to, 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 to rethink about that. Right, right. That's right. There's, there's plenty of money in the system. What, what's not there is the conviction to, to live by value. And, and that's, that's, the, that's, the next, you know, that's the next hurdle. Live by, live by value and, uh, and just do it. So, yeah, that's good. Absolutely. Okay, well, I'm going to wrap up with a couple of, of short questions and then I will let you go because I know you had a, an interview before this and I'm sure yeah. you probably got a people, bunch of people racked up. So obviously you've written several books yourself. Folks, This Ain't Normal is, is the, the one that I've got coming to me. Um, as far as you as a reader, is there a, a book and or a movie that you recommend? Uh, well, 
the well, movie, uh, I mean, you know, Food Inc. is as powerful as they get. It's a little bit of a downer. As long as you come out of there realizing there are farmers like me to go patronize, it's good. But it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a, of a downer. Uh, we, we like Fresh better. There's a, a documentary out uh, named Fresh. We're in that one, too. But it, it's a much more upbeat, uh, can-do type of, uh, of movie. Um, uh, books. Uh, well, you know, I, I tend to gravitate toward toward farming books, um, but you know, it doesn't get any better than uh, Wendell Berry, uh, the unsettling of America. Uh, you know, Wendell Berry is is iconic in in the sustainable ag movement and uh, certainly articulates a lot of the issues very well. Uh, and he's wonderful to read and and uh, profound. So, you know, somebody wants to just I mean, besides my books, uh, to to look at these issues, uh, Wendell Berry's *The Unsettling of America* is probably uh, as good as they get. Okay, yeah, I have seen *Fresh* as well. That was a very well-made film too. Um, and then uh, one more question: When you need to laugh, when you've had a bad day, or you just had enough and you need to laugh, what do you what do you do? Where do you go? Who do you hang out with? <laughs> Oh, uh, well, I, I enjoy being at home. I mean, I travel a lot, so when I, when I want to get away, I, I get home. So I enjoy being at home. Uh, what I do for, for enjoyment is, uh, you know, I read. And, um, uh, you know, my wife and I are right now are going through uh, Downton Abbey. Um, that's, just a, that's just a wonderful series. We don't, we don't have a TV so, you know, we get a DVD of a series if we like it. Um, but uh, we, we, have a, we have a lot of laughs here on the farm. We've got a lot of people here. Whenever there's a lot of people and they enjoy each other, uh, there's a lot of laughter just in the, in the shenanigans of every day's uh, ordinary activities. Last evening, I'll tell you this, yesterday afternoon, uh, those of people who know me and have read after me know that I, I do not have uh, great carpenter uh, skills, and but yeah, you know, I get along. But just you know, it, it's it's kind of slap slap dab together, you know. And uh, so yesterday afternoon, um, I was helping my 13 year old grandson uh, put together his uh, duck duck pen in for the winter for in one of the hoop houses. And I've done you know we've done this every every year for like three or four years. He's had his ducks, and we just make a, like a, a a 12 foot by uh, you know, by 18 foot, he's only got 40 ducks. So not like that had to be real big. So we kind of make this little, this little, um, plastic bird netting pin inside the hoop house. So the, the laying, the hens, the chickens are outside and this little pin of ducks is inside. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's an enclosure within the enclosure. And, and we've used the same, we've used the same material stuff every year. Okay. So we're out there and, uh, for some reason last year, the boards got misplaced. Somebody put them away. We didn't have, so we had to start afresh. I thought, oh, let's go make this thing a little bit simpler. So, um, so we did. And so we all, we got done. And Travis, he's 13. He just turned 13. He's standing there. He's looking at this. And he says, well, Grandpa, that's a pretty good job. It just looks like a two-year-old built. <laughs> <laughs> I about laughed till I split. So, um. So that's a that that's that's humor. Yeah, the kids kids say some funny stuff. I remember this is, they sure this is do. not quite the same uh, genre, but I remember when my son was probably only five, and he came out of the the shower holding his 
holding his manhood and looks at me and goes, Daddy, look, it's almost as big as yours now. <laughs> I said, thanks. Thanks a lot, Ty. <laughs> but yeah, that man keeps me laughing every day too. And I think that's, that's another thing that we're missing. We should be laughing a lot more. <laughs> oh, very good. All right. So well, just well, to finish up then, um, where can people find you just before, before we hang up so they know well, where to, sure. to look? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah po- Polyface Farms is our website. That's all one word, P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E, farms. Uh, if you get poly, about P-O-L-Y-F in there, it'll pop right up. Um, and it's a website. We have all sorts of links. We have resources, uh, you know, lots, lots, of, lots of information there, places where I'll be speaking, uh, all those kinds of things. We have a gift shop. You know, if you want to wear a shirt that says, um, you know, grass-fed or, or uh, lunatic farmer or whatever, you know, um, we have that as well. So, uh, yeah, uh, check that out. Lots of information there, and that's polyfacefarms.com. Fantastic. All right, well, thank you so much for talking to us today. I'm, I'm sure that there's a huge amount of people out there that are going to have their minds blown by, by this talk. And I would love, if, if it's okay with you, in the future, down the line sometime, to come up to the farm and actually maybe shoot an interview on video, follow up. A- absolutely. We'd, lo- we'd love to have you. Love to have you.